This is my father's world. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. It is in him that we live and we move and we have our being. This is our father's world. The song says, I rest me in that thought. That though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. That is a good reminder for us today as once again our world is being turned upside down by wars and rumors of wars. And if you're like me, you just get tired of hearing about it all sometimes. And I hope that with me you also pray, even so, come Lord Jesus, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In his white paper on American debt and demographics, economist Bill Frey writes that American household debt hit a record $16.9 trillion at the end of 2022. He breaks it down and says that to date, Americans owe $986 billion in credit cards. We owe $11.92 trillion on mortgages, $1.55 trillion on vehicle loans, and $1.60 trillion on student loans. <clears throat> His summary, which was quite obvious, he says Americans are swimming in debt and we seem to love it. So I have to imagine that Paul's admonition in Romans chapter 13, verse eight, would be exasperating for most of us. As he encourages us that we should owe nothing to anyone. No student loan, no vehicle loan, no mortgage. And by the way, did you know that the word mortgage is a French word made of two French words? Mort means death, engage means pledge, a mortgage is a death pledge. <laughs> it was named that because a mortgage ends only after you pay the loan off or when you die. A death pledge. I hope that doesn't stop you from getting a mortgage. Because most of us have spent our lifetime, our entire adult lives, under a death pledge. In fact, Paul teaches us in this text today that each of us is already under a death pledge. We come into this world in debt. For most of the debt that you'll incur in your, your lifetime, you'll have something to show for it. If you have a car loan, you likely have a car. If you have a student loan, you likely have more knowledge. But today Paul wants to teach us about a different kind of debt. A bill that is on every person's tab for which we may have nothing to show. He says we should owe no person anything except to love one another. Before we get too deep into the text, 
and come to understand this obligation that Paul has brought to our attention that most of us didn't even know we had, let's take a moment to consider this truth. Because Paul here is making an assumption that is easy to overlook. In giving this godly instruction to us, Paul is assuming that every person, that every human being on the planet has something to give. That every person and every child of God in particular came into the world with this currency called love. No matter the economic condition or your upbringing, no matter whether I live in the slums or in the suburbs, every person has something to give, something to contribute to our neighbors and to this world. Each of us has the capacity to love. Every individual here, every individual in the world functions like the U.S. Treasury Department. Every one of us is able to produce this currency called love at will. We're walking, breathing, living ATM machines. And love is the legal tender, just like a dollar bill. Here is a dollar bill. One dollar bill, you see it's crumpled up. I had to search for this thing. A dollar bill. I take this dollar bill to the store and I give it to the cashier and I get a soda pop in return. The cashier accepts my dollar. But does she accept this dollar because of my reputation? Does she accept this dollar from me because of my name? No, she doesn't even know me. She accepts my dollar bill because of the promise that is inscribed on it and because of the signatories who signed it. It says here, if I can get my vision together, this bill, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. And it's signed by the treasurer of the U.S. and the secretary of the treasury. My currency has value not because of who I am, but because of the nation that backs it. So it is with this currency called love. God is love. And when I show you love, I fulfill God's promise toward you. I owe you love because you bear the image and the likeness of God himself. And in loving you, I am returning back to God what belongs to him. Love is the currency of heaven. Love is the language of heaven. And it is God's desire that every soul has the experience of heaven on earth. So that to withhold love from any person is to attempt to withhold God from that person. To withhold love from any person is to stand in the way of God speaking blessing over his creation. Why does the world seem so dim nowadays? Why do so many humans live in utter despair? Why is anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts so prevalent among mankind? 
I'll tell you why. Because too many of us, even within the church, too many of us do not take our obligation to love very seriously. We refuse to love. Or we choose only to love people who act like us, look like us, think like us, and live like us. And this, this delinquency is what makes this world such an abrasive, such a dangerous, such a difficult environment to thrive in. There is not enough love in circulation. Not enough people willing to come out of their comfort zone to love the other. Which is a term, I have to confess, a term that I really detest. The other. I don't know when we started referring to people who are not like us as the other, but to me it sounds rather naive. Because truly, brothers and sisters, there is no other. And for me to believe that there is an other is proof that I do not love my neighbor. Because it takes me no more effort to love the stranger than it does to love my brother, or it shouldn't. And if it takes me more effort to love the person who is not like me, it is only because, catch this, it is only because I do not know myself. This is the command of God, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as though your neighbor were you, is what that means. Love your neighbor as though your neighbor were you. On the surface, this command seems like an impossible task because my neighbor is not me and I am not my neighbor. His experiences, his upbringing, her culture, her mindset, all are very different from mine. So how can I possibly love him as though he were me? Hmm. Well, the, 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 the sociological lesson of empathy would respond to that question and say that you have to learn how to put yourself in other people's shoes. We all say that. You have to learn how to put yourself in other people's shoes. You have to study and learn all about their culture and learn to appreciate and to relate to their particular struggles and their way of life. That's the sociological answer. But the truth is that to love my neighbor does not require I understand his culture or her way of life. What love demands and what God wants to show us is that I and my neighbor, on the essentially human level, I and my neighbor are one and the same. I am not unique and I am not on an island unto myself. You and I are a continuation of another man's story that is being told since the dawn of time. I and my neighbor are the same. Love does not recognize an other. Love truly knows that there is no other. There is only us. This is what Paul has been getting at since verse 9. There is only us. 
And if we want to live in peaceful community, if we desire God's peace and goodwill to be prevalent among mankind, it is up to each of us to take our obligation to contribute to such a world more seriously, to be about the business of loving one another genuinely and sincerely. For as Paul says, the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the whole law of God from Genesis to Revelation. And when any society, not just Christian, when any society makes it their mission and their aim to love one another, that society will thrive and prosper under God. Where there is love, there will be unity. Most nations, including our own, and most groups are not thriving today because love among mankind is becoming more and more scarce each and every day. As we continue to emphasize our differences, as we continuously find more and more ways in which we are not alike, as each day another specialized faction of society emerges and demands its own special category and its own special consideration. When that happens, then we decide whom we love and we decide whom we will be loyal to according to the groups and the lifestyles that we embrace. That is naivete. Because the differences that we magnify and the nuances that we focus upon are marginal and subjective at least and inconsequential at best. In other words, love, love, true love that comes from God. Love takes no, none of these differences into account. Because love, true love, does not love my exterior self my surface self. Love loves at the essential level. And essentially, you and I are the same. At the level of our essence, we have all things in common. And this is why and this is how it is possible to love every person. And just so you know, this is why God loves mankind. How can God love the sinner? How? How can a holy God love a sinner? How can God love those who hate him? How can God love those who have declared themselves to be his enemy? How can God love such an unholy and profane creature like myself? It would seem that he and I have nothing in common. But the answer is quite simple. God loves the sinner because sin is only a peripheral aspect of man's existence. In his essence, in our essence, we have more in common with God on the essential level then we have differences with God. 
Mankind is made in the image and in the likeness of Almighty God. And there remains an aspect of our essence that resonates with God's being. And even though we may be, even though we may become the worst of men, God knows that at our core we bear the markings of his divine nature. And he loves us, listen to this, God loves us as he loves himself. Because essentially mankind is of a similar species, if I can use that word. Mankind is of a similar species to God himself. God made us that way. God desires that we be and that we become more and more able to see through to the essence of every kind of person, no matter their, their age, no matter their education, no matter their geography, no matter their culture, no matter their mindset. Because in the grandest scheme, these things have no lasting meaning. They are not relevant to the value that God has bestowed upon every human soul. Hmm. So when you and I by discernment are able to see ourselves in every other human being, loving them becomes second nature. When you recognize that your brother is you and you are your brother, it becomes easier to love him. Because you can see yourself in him. <laughs> hmm. And you will seek your neighbor's greater good. And you will have the highest aspiration for your neighbor when you recognize that you and your neighbor are one and the same. Most of you know that I sit in the morning and consider myself deeply. 15 minutes in the morning, doesn't take long. 15 minutes to sit and consider my thoughts, consider my emotions, to evaluate myself, to see where I stand. Psychologically, mentally, emotionally, to gather myself to review myself. I hope you all do this at some point. Review yourself. Sit quietly and look at your own self. What you'll find when you do this long enough is that you can relate to every human being in the whole world. <laughs> because everything that is them is also you. There is no difference among mankind. We create these exterior differences. We make all of these caste systems and, 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 and different social levels. And we do this. It's not reality. In reality, we're all exactly the same. That's why God tells us to love your neighbor like your neighbor is you. It's not that difficult. <laughs> because you and he are just alike. But my neighbor was a murderer. Well, so can you be. My neighbor is a liar. Well, so can you be. Mm -hmm. You're just like him. 
What about people like Jeffrey Dahmer? Well, I'm, I'm not going to do like Jeffrey Dahmer, but I can relate to Jeffrey. Why can't I relate to Jeffrey? Yes, you can. It's scary, but you can. You can't do what he did. But there is a part of you that is just as angry, just as confused, just as frustrated as he was. If you sit quietly and see your own self, you will see that the person you despise the most, you have something in common with them. We all do. There is only one humanity. There are not two. There is only one of us. There is only one Adam, and every sin that was an Adam is in every human soul. And when I sit there quietly in the morning and feel sorry for myself as I watch foolish thoughts run across my mind, <laughs> I begin to be able to relate to more people and to understand that I am just as weak and just as frail and just as sinful as everybody else and that I am not better than anybody else. And the way that I need love, every other human being needs love. And a long time ago, I stopped seeing differences in people. A long time ago, I stopped seeing differences in people. Because essentially, we are the same person. <laughs> Some people don't like to hear that because it makes them feel less unique, less special. Well, it's the reality of it all. All of us come from the same man, Adam. When we take the time to truly discern this truth and to see ourselves in the other person, no matter how they're dressed, no matter how they talk, no matter their lifestyle, when we take a moment to quiet ourselves, we can see ourselves in that person. We can see that person in us. And you can only love people that you have, have something in common with. And so when you find that commonality, that essential commonality, it makes loving your neighbor all the more easy. Verse 9 says for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this single saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And how do you love yourself? That's a trick question, isn't it? How do you love yourself? How do you love you? Let's use the characteristics of love found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7 to gauge our love for ourselves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love is patient. Are you patient with yourself? Do you always give yourself another chance? Are you committed to yourself in good times and in bad? If the answer is yes, then be patient with your neighbor. Love is kind. Are you kind to yourself? Do you buy nice things for yourself? Do you feed yourself? Do you do what is in your own best interest most of the time? If the answer is yes, then be kind to your neighbor in the same way. Love is not jealous, love does not brag, love is not arrogant. Do you intentionally sabotage your own self? Do you have ill will or foster ill will toward your own self? If the answer is no, then don't sabotage your neighbor. 
Love does not act disgracefully. Do you intentionally disgrace yourself in public? Do you talk down about yourself to yourself? Do you talk down and abuse your own self? If the answer is no, then do not disgrace your neighbor. Love is not easily provoked, as King James Version says. Love is not easily provoked. Love is not easily angered or upset. Do you get angry and stay angry at your own self? Do you refuse to speak to yourself? Do you refuse to acknowledge your own self? Do you try to injure yourself? If the answer is no, then don't injure others. Love does not keep an account of wrongs suffered. So when you fail miserably on your job, when you fail miserably, do you take it out on yourself? Or do you try to comfort yourself with a big bucket of chocolate ice cream, lick your wounds in the dark in your room? When you make a bad decision in your finances, do you hold it against yourself and never let yourself live it down? If the answer is no, then do not hold grudges against your neighbor. Love rejoices in the truth. Are you honest with yourself? Do you hide the truth about yourself from your own self? If the answer is no, then, then be honest with others. Love keeps every confidence. Love exercises discretion. Do you walk around and allow yourself to be an open book where everyone knows all of your business and everything going on in your life? Do you maintain a healthy level of privacy for yourself? If the answer is yes, then keep the confidences of others. Do not backbite and gossip against your brother. Love believes all things. Love, hope, love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Do you hope the best for yourself? If the answer is yes, then hope the best for your brother. Paul continues in Romans chapter 13, verse 10 to say that love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, now, as Paul has been instructing us throughout the book of Romans, we understand that fulfilling the whole law of God does not grant us right to eternal life. We know that. We are not saved by the law. We're saved by grace through faith. Only faith in Jesus Christ can cause us to inherit eternal life. We know that. But Paul also teaches us in the same book that we are to uphold the law of God, that we are to present the law as the highest standard for living in this fallen world that we are to adhere to the law of God as much as possible. We also understand that as far as we can tell, it may not be possible to obey the whole law of God while we're in this flesh, but we embrace the law of God as God's standard, as God's vision for mankind. And as much as we can, we try to obey that command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. As a matter of application, let's take a moment to briefly consider what's happening right now in the Middle East. 
between Israel and Gaza. Because over this week, I have received a surprising number of phone calls and emails asking my position on the events that are unfolding there. Obviously, we know it doesn't take a genius to know that what Hamas did to Israel is an atrocity. It was an evil plot carried out by evil people for evil ends. That is obvious. There is no question about who is wrong in this particular conflict. There is no question. We should also recognize that every nation, and in my opinion, every household, has the right to defend itself against violence and aggression that threatens the lives of its citizens. So of course my normal response is, Israel has to do what is necessary to defend itself in this situation. Their laws have been violated. They have to defend their people. That's obvious enough. And that's my response as an adherent to the good laws of the land, the international law. But the questions I received were not about who are, who's right and who's wrong, so much as they were about whether we Christians should stand with Israel or with the Palestinians in this conflict. Let me say one thing first before I get there. I don't like these kinds of questions. I don't like specialized kinds of questions where we, we have to, who do we, who do we like the most type, it sounds odd, it sounds confusing. The question seems, seems based more on a biblical perspective of Israel rather than a general rule of national sovereignty. I can't figure out why there's a biblical question at all, but that's the question I've been receiving. And my answer to the question as to whether believers have an obligation to stand with Israel is that God has not called us to stand with Israel on the basis of our understanding of their relationship to him. We are to stand for what is right and for what is best for all people equally. We make no exceptions. We love our neighbors, Jew or Gentile, bond or free, and we seek the good of all of humanity. And that is what God has called us to do, and that is what God is seeking in that situation and every situation. God requires that we love our neighbors. And when our neighbors begin to fight, we pray to God for peace. We pray that all sides will be able to put down their swords and find a peaceful resolution to the conflict. We pray for Israel and we pray for Gaza. I don't know why that's even a question. It is only natural for Israel to do what it feels it needs to do to defend itself. That is natural. That's not a biblical question. I pray that Israel will defend itself, but I pray that Israel does not make the same mistake that we made after 9-11 and being caught up in the throes of rage, allow their temper tantrum to destroy innocent human souls and lives. That's what I pray, that they not become indiscriminate 
and allow their wrath to cause them to harm innocent lives. That's what we all should be praying. That's the prayer I pray for Ukraine and Russia. The Holocaust officially began in 1933. If I ask you who was responsible for it, obviously we all would say Hitler was responsible for that, right? Hitler caused the Holocaust, and he did. But it was also due partially to the biblical misinterpretation of Martin Luther, that Hitler made it his goal to annihilate the Jewish people from the face of the earth. A misreading of the scripture caused the Holocaust. Martin Luther, in his misreading of the Old Testament, had come to the conclusion that the Jews were to be marginalized, that God had cursed them. He went so far as to say that Jewish businesses should be shut down across Germany, that their bank accounts should be frozen, that they should be pushed into ghettos. A Christian theologian with a misreading of the scripture came to this conclusion. And Hitler's hatred of the Jews was based on a misinterpretation of the sacred scripture, wherein he felt it his duty to follow through on God's declaration over Israel. He and Hitler, Martin Luther and Hitler, were misguided, misunderstood the scripture, and wreaked havoc in the world, killing nearly six million people. It is saddening just how much evil has been perpetrated in this world due to a misreading of the sacred text. But now today, on the other hand, many Christians are making the exact opposite mistake in the other direction. You turn on these Christian channels and people are thumbing through their Bibles and talking about prophecies and what the whole war war there means and what God is going to do for Israel in response and they're mapping it all out. They've done this a thousand times. Every time there is trouble in the Middle East, they start prophesying. <laughs> they start shouting, we have to stand, it is our duty under God to stand with the chosen people. Let me tell you something. It is not for us to fulfill God's promises toward Israel. He never told us to do that. It is not for us to get between the relationship between God and Israel. It is not for us to fulfill God's promises toward Israel, not, not the promises or the blessings and, and not the punishment, not the tribulation. We are not God. We are called to view Israel like we view any other nation and to apply the same standards to them as we would anyone else. The, God, the Bible says that God is no respecter of any person. In this instance, Israel is completely right to defend herself. I don't need to go to scripture to conclude that. In another instance, Israel may not be right. And in that instance, I must be able to say what is true. If I am the chosen person of God, 
It does not give me a right to do to you whatever I want to do, even if I'm chosen. And even if I am chosen, if I harm you, you have a right to seek retribution, chosen or not. Are you tracking with me? They're regular people. We don't have to open the Bible and start trying to make some spiritual thing about this. It is a war. It is a fight. They have been terrorized. Let them do what they need to do. We don't need scripture to back that up. We didn't need scripture for Ukraine to back that up. Why would we need scripture now? Right is right. Wrong is wrong. Let them do what they need to do and pray for peace. <laughs> that is all. Some of our biblical conundrums we bring on our own selves. And if we want to take a side, in this particular case, not for biblical reasons, but if we want to take a side, I believe it is wise for us to stand with Israel in this situation. They have been wronged. Their borders have been crossed. They have been assaulted. We stand with Israel. I stand, I'm sorry, I stand with Israel. You stand wherever you want. It's not like this is some kind of a heavenly quiz. You stand where you want. If we want to stand in love, we should mourn and we should mourn every death of every human soul. And we should pray for the peace of all people devastated by this war. And furthermore, we should pray that a mediator will arise who can cool all tempers and emphasize God's vision for all of humanity. Because we owe it to all people to love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the love wherewith you have loved us. Thank you, Father God, that you are not a respecter of any person, but that you love us all the same. We pray, Father God, that you would give us hearts that are not partial, not prejudiced, not biased. But give us the ability by your Holy Spirit to see ourselves in every human soul and to see every human soul in ourselves. Give us spiritual eyes so that we can recognize your divine spark in every human, in, in all of humanity. Give us the ability to love our neighbor as ourselves. So that for us, for your children, there is no stranger. But that we might be known and that we might know all people. So that we can share your love. And cast your vision. Throughout the world. For your glory. In Jesus name.